Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession today continues from Proverbs, now chapter 29, verse 8. Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Scoffers are dangerous to themselves, both to those near them as well as themselves. Their arrogance and rebellious spirit provoke the wrath of God and men. Being a fool is bad enough, but a scoffer is worse. A scoffer, or sometimes some translations use scorner, is a conceited fool. He is so puffed up in pride, he despises his betters. Scoffers are arrogant, they're without wisdom, or even a desire for it. They mock, they show contempt, disrespect, and are sarcastic. And their attitudes and words are usually against those who are in authority over them. Their scorn may may be against parents, their boss, the police, or a judge. And ultimately, though, they are scoffing directly against God himself. And like this proverb says, they set a city aflame. Wisdom knows when to fight and when not to. Wisdom does not stumble into conflicts accidentally or unnecessarily. The scriptures are filled with examples of wise men that discreetly and prudently turned away God's wrath from his people. Consider Moses and Aaron, Elijah, Amos, Job, Daniel, Samuel, and Noah, among others. Rather than scornfully responding to the judgment from God, they humbly sought his mercy and delivered those with them. Ultimately, wisdom demonstrated by embracing the Lord Jesus Christ by faith is the only means of avoiding God's wrath that is due to us. When the wicked Jews scornfully defiled him, it led to the utter destruction of their nation. They scoffed, deriled, and mocked Christ, which brought on their city the greatest tribulation ever. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are if you're willing and able. scriptures in Isaiah um, chapter 42, Isaiah 42, from verse 1 to 9, and the book of Isaiah is uh, also called by the church fathers the fifth gospel. And they call Isaiah the fifth gospel because um, the influence of Isaiah on the New Testament is huge, is enormous. For instance, just in the gospel, um, more than a half of Jesus' quotes from the Old Testament are from the book of Isaiah. Actually, 
in his first sermon, when Jesus was describing the mission of his ministry, he quoted Isaiah 61. You may remember verse 1 and 2 when he said, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 17 to 21. But now in the Gospels, um, Isaiah is more often quoted and alluded also uh, in Paul's letters. Even in the book of Revelation, the Isaiah is the book uh, which is more quoted and alluded. But speaking about the book of Isaiah, and, and, and here is a trick thing when you come to a church to preach uh, different passages because you you need to explain the, the book and the book of Isaiah is very interesting the first 39 chapters um, describe the people of God just like me and you and 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 being being so rebellious evil in their behavior and disobedient to her call he's talking about Israel so those uh, 39 chapters describe Israel um, resisting to be um, a light to the nation. Resisting to be the nation uh, through whom all families of the earth would be blessed. That's, that, that was the call that God gave it, uh, through Abraham, promise. So... Um, there is a call to repent in the first 39 chapters. And right in the beginning, in first, the first chapter, we see God calling His people, uh, verse 16, saying, Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And verse 17, learn to do good. And then God described what He means by Learn how to do good. He says, seek justice, correct oppression, or as NIV says, rescue the oppressed. Bring justice for uh, the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. So, you see, the, the first 39 chapters, God's calling His people to come back to the Great Commission. They were supposed to be a light, a blessing to the nation. So, also in the first 39 chapter, God warns His covenant people to change their ways, to repent. Otherwise, punishment, destruction, you'd come upon them. So, God anticipates, anticipates His judgments. And then, following God's judgments, chapters 40 to uh, 55, um, contain prophecies of comfort for Israel, especially um, regarding um, her exile and return to the promised land. And those um, 15 chapters, 40 to 53, those chapters here are mainly concerned um, in announcing God's redemptive benefits to Israel, but also to all nations. 
So in those chapters, uh, most of the commentators, theologians, they call the servant songs. Is what we're going to see here today is the first one. The first servant song by which the Lord gives a decent prophecy about his chosen one. The one who would bring redemption to his people. The one who would restore the proper worship to God. And the one who would set a pattern. A way that the great commission should follow. So the theme for today is the servants, his mission, and our great commission. And I want to just um, anticipate that the servants that we're going to see here is no one else but Jesus Christ himself. We're going to see how scriptures uh, reveal that and show that to us. So today I'd like to invite you. Um, to see how this servant here in the Old Testament, um, his call, his empowering, his goal for his mission, set the bars for us, for our great commission. Because we do have a great commission. And I hope you do believe that we have a great commission today. And, and I, I do believe that sometimes we run through Matthew 28 to speak about the Great Commission. But this passage here does help us to understand our Great Commission um, right now. Because Jesus is, himself told his disciples, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we got, what we're going to see here, it is the sending of the Messiah... Right here in the Old Testament. So let's go to Isaiah 42 verse 1 to 9. Behold my servants whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be disencouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and spread them out, who spread out the earth. And what comes from it? Who gives breath to the people in it? And a spirit to those who walk in it? I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nation. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the darkness. From the dungeon. And from the prison, those who sit in the darkness, I am the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell of them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we 
First of all, we thank you for you set apart this day for us to bring us here to meditate, to rest upon your word. So we ask your blessing today and this morning as we, um, we are going to investigate this servant, his call, his empowering, his goal in his mission. Open up our minds and hearts to learn from him. Who is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. May your Holy Spirit help us, O oh Lord, to open up our eyes and our minds and our hearts to our own mission. And help us to see that through this passage today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I got here in July first last year and has been a great experience to work with the Dutch community, Dutch church. That's my first time. But anyway, I have worked with so many different cultures and people. But finally, um, I mean, my, my work is mainly towards the mission, the urban mission around the, uh, the west side, Grand Rapids. It's, and the Lord has blessed us so much. Uh, we had a group right now, around 30 people coming to our house every Friday from the community. After the soccer club, now I'm mean, getting the parents to, to connect with them. We just open our house, offer a meal, just come. Come and see who we are. You know? and, and it has been great. But at the same time, I'm, I'm trying to understand what the church thinks about mission. What is the, the regulatory principle that the church today is following to fulfill their mission? And any, any, any nation, any church from any place, they have their own reg regulatory principle. Whether or not they are right, they are biblical, that's the problem. In my church, in my church in Brazil, we are much more concerned about social gospel, you know, than the redemptive historical preaching of the word. So what comes from the poops and what the church does has been based in the, 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 the circumstance that the church is surrounded. Poverty, drugs. So those principles has regulated the preaching and the mission. And then I got in a fight, in a fight with my pastor saying, no, no, we... You cannot do that. Scripture is the regulative principle, not just for the worship, but also for the mission of the church. And now I think he's getting the point. But here is the same. We do have some principles, and that it seems that's not so right. But finally, two weeks ago, I was speaking with a, a professor from a Calvin Seminar, a friend of mine, Dr. Bosman, and he was sharing with me a conversation that he had with the pastors. I don't know how many years ago, but I was asking him, what do you think about the, the church dying? Dying? We are not growing anymore. We are not reaching out to the community. And it seems that there is no concern about to do that. And he was trying to explain to me why, why, why. And then finally he mentioned a conversation that he had with another pastor. And this pastor was telling him, saying, you know, uh, Dr. Bosman, the reason why um, the, mission, the church is dying today, the reason why we are not reaching out to the community is because immigration stopped. 
And then Dr. Bahu said, well, when was that? Immigration never stopped. You mean the Dutch immigration? Oh yeah, I mean the Dutch immigration. Oh, now I know. So you see, Great Commission was not necessary during the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, but then things start to change. And it seems that the church is still waiting for this Great Commission to go forth under the same principle. We just need to open our doors and the people are going to come here and yeah, everybody like Jesus and love Jesus, you know. No, that's not going to happen. So I hope you can see here today from this passage how uh, the, the, the mission of these servants, his call, the empowering, the goal, that's going to be our points here, really uh, set the bars for us. And right here the Lord is speaking to the nation of Israel. The Lord's not speaking to Israel about Israel, but He's speaking to the nation of Israel, and He's speaking to anyone who later on you'd heard about this uh, prophetic and, and call to these servants. And although it may sound that the Lord is speaking about Israel, because later on the Lord will call Israel as uh, His servants, right here, right here the Lord is referring to a specific person within Israel who is so faithful that Israel cannot be. And actually Israel is failing so much, just as we are failing so much to fulfill the Great Commission. So we can see that here, these servants, it is distinct from Israel and as a nation. For instance, if you open with me uh, Isaiah 40, verse 27, uh, the Lord is speaking with Israel about Israel, and He is saying that Israel is a resentful, complaining nation. 40 verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God? So Israel is, is complaining so much about the way that God was treating them. In, in chapter 41, verse 8 uh, and 10, Israel has been fearful and dismayed. But you, Israel, my servants, he's calling Israel as his servants, but you, Israel, my servants, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father Fathers, corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Can you see the contrast here between the truth, servants, and Israel? They are both called God's servants. But right here in, in chapter 42, um, God is leading Isaiah to make a better contrast because here in this chapter we have both the true servants, the one, the Messiah, Christ Himself, and Israel. Chapter 42, verse 18, 19. Look to that. 18. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind. You see the way that God is describing His servants? You are deaf, you are blind. Why? Because they're not 
listen to God's word. They're not hearing what the Lord is saying to them. You hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind like my servants? He's calling Israel a blind servant. A deaf servant. Or deaf as my messenger whom I send. You see, God sends Israel. Israel, right in, right in the Old Testament, they were supposed to be a light to the nation. They were supposed to be God's messengers. But they failed. They failed. And then in verse 20, 23 and 24, still here in chapter 42, God goes on in, in describing Israel as disobedient. So all these texts here um, really show that the true servants differs from Israel herself. In fact, Israel as a nation is in need of salvation instead of being a savior herself. Just as a church today, we need a savior. But that doesn't undermine the call to preach the gospel so other people can be saved. So, verse 1 here. Let's go back to verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my choosing one, in whom my soul delights. The Lord's soul is delighting in his servants. See how the Lord used strong words of personal approval to these servants. Divine satisfaction for these servants. See how the Lord's words to his servants disclose his godly character. A close walking with God. And then his willingness to serve in God's mission. And right here we can see that the call, first and foremost, is really based in an intimate relationship. Why we don't do mission? Because we are lacking in our relationship with God. Because when you start to walk with God, God's minds became your minds. God's desire became your desires. God's mission became your mission. God's passion became your passion. So back to verse 1. Behold my servant in whom, um, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Anyone, anyone reading this verse here can hardly avoid its fulfillment uh, during the baptism of Jesus. Remember? When he was being baptized, a voice said, um, This is my beloved one, in whom I'm well pleased. So you see these words from Isaiah being fulfilled in Jesus. Being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, beside these um, words of approval, did you notice, did you notice that the Lord's words um, describing the status, uh, the status of these special status of these servants? 
he's different. It's not so different, but it's still, there is, there is something different here. The Lord says, Behold my servants. That's fine. Israel as well. Whom I uphold. Not too much Israel. But he is something Israel and we can relate it to. My chosen. Or as the NIV said, my chosen one. Or King James says, my elect. Can you see that? So throughout this passage here. This servant's status of election is not only due to his personal relationship, delight with God, but also based on the mission that God has assigned to him and his willingness to fulfill that mission. Election and mission. So I want to highlight that because sometimes we can create a wrong a wrong view about election. I didn't come from a reform background, but I heard a lot about election. Was the the main thing that my, 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 my wife's family used to use to draw me to the Presbyterianism. Oh come, you need to learn about election. So beautiful. But you see, people can have a wrong perspective even about their own election. As if election itself is disconnected with our call to serve God. As if election to be saved is disconnected with the election of, about serving God in the Great Commission. I was interviewed uh, two months ago by Kevin Jin Young from, from, from uh, the presbytery, from my ordination. And he asked me, when you receive your call... Uh, I think I received him when I became a believer. Because I, soon as I left the church, I started to preach the gospel as crazy as you can imagine. What do you mean crazy, Eric? Sunday, Saturday afternoon, I used to scream in the streets. Can you, can you think about a guy going walking 9, 10 o'clock in the morning? Today I want to have a message for you. I didn't know how many books you have in the Bible at that time. Nothing. But what I know is that you're a sinner. You're not going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. That was my message. Short message. Five minutes, ten minutes, it's done. Because I believe that conversion, my conversion and my culture ministry was one-time event. The same grace that saved me is the same grace that pushes me to preach the gospel. So election, I hope you can see right here from this truth. Servants, that election really shapes the way we do mission. Certain man, certain uh, father, um, one day he was trying to explain, listen to that, he was trying to explain why he was not worried about his son attending the church or not being involved with things in the church. He was trying to justify his son. And then he mentioned the letter that his son wrote. And listen what his son wrote. Children are starving with empty bellies in a faraway lands. They have nothing to eat. Around them, they hear sounds of gunfire and bombs going, going off. And it made me realize that we are so lucky. We are so lucky because we are living here and not there. What's wrong here? 
course, we should be thankful and grateful for the freedom that we have here. But if election sounds in that way, that does not affect our relationship with God, neither our service in God's kingdom, that is something wrong here. We are so lucky because we are living here instead of living there. You see, election has become a lacking status for many of us. A lacking feeling that we have in our hearts. But neither affects our relationship with God, nor our call to serve God. That kind of election is meaningless. It's meaningless. What we have seen here... And we can see from the Old and New Testament, those who God called to serve Him. Think about Abraham. When God called him to be saved, automatically was a call to serve God. Moses was a call to be saved, which was, but also a call to serve God. Paul was a call to be saved, yes, it was, but also a call to serve God. And that wasn't I'm trying to explain to my kids. We are surrounded by uh, some Muslims' kids. And I'm so glad. And now it seems that my kids got it. Because I told them, here's your mission. Those kids are here. And we don't know how long they'll be here. But you have opportunity to stop complaining about their behavior. And preach the gospel to them. And they got it. My daughters came to me, yeah, she want to hear some song, but I told her, let's put this Christian song to hear. And she looked at me that like, hmm, Christian song? Yeah, keep doing that, Milena. Because that's your call. Even new children, you have a call. You have a call, not just to be saved, but to preach the gospel for your friends. That's our call, election here. So, the reality is that hungry people do not get fed because we feel, look, oh yeah, we feel, they're going to they're gonna be fed. No, homeless does not get shelter because we feel, look, the Great Commission will never be accomplished by a people who just feel luck for being elected. But the Great Commission has been and will be accomplished by those who understand that election for salvation goes hand by hand with election to serve in God's kingdom. There is no separation here, brothers and sisters. There is no separation. And here is something that really shapes the nature of these uh, uh, servants here, his mission, his call. Verse 2, verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. In other words, he will not complain. He will not give up. Even though it's going to require suffering, trouble, death, he will not give up. And that set the bar for us as well. Because Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. But take courage. And what is the resource? Because I overcome the world. That's the hope that we have. That we can carry on in our mission. Because our Lord never gave up from His mission. So in verse 3. You see how He's going to go forth with His mission. 
He'll do it in compassion, with mercy. That's the way he's going to do that. A bruised reed, he'll not break. And a faintly burning weak, he'll not quench. Speaking about those who are suffering in our society. He, he will act in compassion, mercy, and love for them. Even though they don't want to hear the gospel sometimes. Even though. Even though they might not get it inside our church. In verse 4, God assures, assures His covenant people that despite all His challenges and trouble His servants will face, His servants will maintain His divine and direct course of action until God's justice prevail. He'll never give up. Verse 4, He'll not grow faint or be disencouraged. Till he has established justice in the earth. So that's the, the motivation that we have for our own, own great commission. Our Lord never give up. Never. He carry on till the ends. But the reason that the true servant here will never give up from his mission, but will carry it on till the end. It's not just because he has been elected. Because election, it is not an end in itself. But because he has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's our second point here. The empowering of the servants. And now I want us to consider um, that this empowering here, and it is the empowering of the Holy Spirit, not only enable the servants for his mission, but also shapes, informs, regulates the mission itself. Because we cannot go out and say, yeah, let's do a mission. As I have seen, what, what, what mission are we talking about? We're talking about the mission of the common grace? We're talking about a mission under the saving grace. That, that was a huge... Um, fighting in Lausanne in 2010. I was in South Africa. I don't know if you heard about Lausanne. It's this historical meeting um, in which believers from all over the world go to a place to discuss uh, the church and its mission. And the point was, what is our primarily called? Social gospel or saving gospel? It was a huge fight. Because pastors and leaders from South America, Africa, they push towards liberation theology. It's about social gospel. God will never establish his kingdom until poverty. Stay here. But praise be to God, because John Piper said, no. Our primary call, it is a saving, redemptive mission. And as, a long, as we go, yes, we do care about the poor and their needs, physical needs. But our primary call, it is redemptive. But for that happen, we need to empower him. I want to see that in verse 1 and verse 6. The empowering of the servants. Verse 1. The second part says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. Can you see that? The empowering 
He's shaping the mission. It's not just a political mission. Jewish people thought about that. Oh yeah, we thought that you would restore Israel politically. No, it's more than that. So again, it's very reasonable to conclude here in this verse that Isaiah is referring to Jesus himself. The empowering, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. As I said, Jesus in his first sermon referred, applied this empowering of the Holy Spirit to himself. And we can see that throughout the gospel over and over again. How the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus and also, and also show us that we share in Christ the same power. And let me mention some, some uh, um, points here about Jesus being empowered. Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you may ask, so how can we relate to that? Since we were not conceived uh, uh, in the womb of our mothers by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we still can relate to that. Because even though we have not been conceived in the womb of our mother by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been conceived into God's kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have, we have been born from above, from the water and from the Spirit, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our mission God's kingdom, our new birth, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, Jesus was led and fought in his temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we as well. When Paul was um, exhorting the Galatians regarding their sanctification, he said to them, live, live by the Spirit, and you will not gravi gratify, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In our mission, in our personal, private, private mission, in our sanctification, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers us. But especially here, speaking about Jesus being empowered by the Holy Spirit for His public ministry. Listen what um, Peter says about Jesus being empowered. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 verse 34. In 38, 38, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is, is acceptable to him. As far as the word he has sent to Israel, preaching preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourself, yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth 
with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the evil. For God was with him. He went about doing good. Everything that God called Israel to do in the Old Testament. He was supposed to learn how to do good. Was fulfilling Christ. He is the faithful one. Actually, he is the true missionary. So, but again, it's not different for us. Jesus taught, proclaimed the good news in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can see that in Luke 4, 15. But in the same way, the church has been empowered to do so. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to him, to them, You stay here, wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and then you stay in the church forever. No. And then you go. And then you go. But they didn't want to go, remember? They stay, actually, until persecution, persecution breaks out. And then they start to go. In other words, when you don't go by the power by the Holy Spirit, you're going to go by the persecution. You can choose. And some people say, perhaps that's is what needs to happen in America and in Brazil. Persecution. So that we can really go as we flee. And, but the church was empowered. You can see Stephen, a deacon. I'm so inspired by his life. He was supposed just to take care of the church. Poor. No. He went further. He went out, preached the gospel, and paid with his own life. What about Peter, who denied Christ? And after being empowered, man, the high priests, the Jewish leaders, didn't recognize the old Peter. Wait, wait, wait a minute. That guy was an uneducated man. And now he's preaching to us so passionately. What's happened? It was the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The church itself, in the beginning, was organized under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When a fight broke inside between the Greek and the uh, Hebrews, windows, it was the Holy Spirit that set those wisdom for the apostles to set up deacons as the first time. Where did they get that? Deacons. They never heard before this deacon's office. So the Holy Spirit guided the church, even in its organization. Even in its organization. But not only that, as, as I said, when the Holy Spirit came through the church, upon the church, it points the church to all nations. And we see that in verse 1 of Isaiah. Verse 1, chapter 40. Where's my Isaiah 40? 42, sorry. Behold my servant, my servant, whom I uphold my choosing, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. To the nations. Now, just think about the people in the Old Testament reading this book. To the nations? Why is God concerned about the nation, not just concerned about His people, Israel? And the answer is in verse 5. Can you see the answer in verse 5? 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. And listen to that now. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The reason why God's concerned about all nations is because He is a creator God. He is a covenant God. He put Adam as a covenant person. He was the first of all as a covenant person for all mankind. And when Adam failed and all mankind failed with him, God announced the gospel, the good news, Genesis 3:15, and he said, I will do it. I will do it. Right in the beginning. And he, even though he set apart specific people, the Hebrew, Israel, he did so with this universal focus in mind to reach out all the nation. All the nation was supposed to be blessed. That's what he said to Abraham. And right here, the Lord is setting his servants again as a covenant for the people, as he did with Adam, a lie to the nation, as he announced to Israel when they failed. So the Lord Jesus is to be the very embodiment of that covenant. And he did so, and he fulfilled, and he fulfilled perfectly, once for all, by his life, death, and resurrection. And after fulfilling this promise, now he passed this mission to his church. And now comes Matthew 28, verse 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have the same mission because we have the same power to accomplish this mission. But, as I said, the empowering of the Holy Spirit also shapes the mission. Shapes the mission. Verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as, as a covenant for the people, a light to the nation, to open their eyes, the eyes that are blind, to bring, to bring out the prisoners from the, from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, my question is, what does Isaiah think about he will bring forth justice? He will bring forth justice. If we see this passage in light of the redemptive history, if we go back to Adam and see how he failed, bring justice is that the servant will undo all the horrendous 
effects that Adam has brought upon the human race. And that Israel failed to do. So the, the, the true servant here will restore to people their true freedom, dignity, as sons and daughters of God, by redeeming them spiritually. That is what Isaiah is meant, meant by bringing justice. This is the reason of the empowering. The Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is a covenantal empowering, is a saving empowering, is a redemptive empowering. So Isaiah is contrasting here even the kings, Cyrus, that will be called as well my choosing one, my servant. But Cyrus could only bring justice physically, not spiritually. So I hope you can see that the priority of the, the mission here of these servants, it is redemption, it's spiritual redemption. And the priority of the Great Commission, it is spiritual redemption. It is not social justice. It is not just giving food. It is not just paying the bills. I work with the benevolence ministry in my church. It is not only that. We need to open our hearts for those people because they need more than a paid bill. <laughs> they need someone to pay for their sins. And that's what they need. They need, they, they need a spiritual food. So that's the way that the true servants here, it is above all what Israel could do, Cyrus. And that's the way he's going to glorify God, by bringing redemptive justice. We go to our final point here. That's the goal of the servants. Verse 8. I'm the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other. No praise to carved idols. So that's the goal. Glory to God. Worship to Him. That's the goal. It's not to make the society happy. People one day said to me, Why you go? Many years ago I was preaching and a leader in an in a, uh, um, agent's mission said to me, Why you go so crazy and preach the gospel like that if the people are not going to hear you? Well, I don't care if they're going to hear or not. I need to preach. Whether for their condemnation or for their salvation, God will be glorified. So the preaching of the gospel is not um, subjugated to the answer of the gospel, to the gospel. We need to go and preach. We need to go and preach because that's the way that we're going to glorify God. And if I had to ask, why did God send His Son to earth? The answer could be, perhaps could be, well, we can see here in verse 1 until verse 7, that, that, that the goal was to live a perfect life, to please God, to proclaim the word of God, to establish God's kingdom, to bear, to bear the people's sins, to forgive those who turn to Him, to make them righteous before God's eyes. You see, but that's just the positive thing. Yes, they are all part of His mission. Yet, in all of these, the ultimate goal of the true servants... Christ Himself coming to earth was to glorify God. Throughout His mission, 
from his birth to death, God's purpose through his servants was to manifest his glory. To manifest his glory. When Jesus was born, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. Luke 2 verse 14. And shortly before his death, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. From the beginning to the end, his mind towards his mission, the purpose of his mission was to glorify God. Glorify God. It is his motivation. And that is what we see here in verse 8. Why? Because God is concerned about his glory. God is concerned about his glory. So here is a good question for you. In which way we know that God doesn't share his glory to, one, to no one else. But in which way God's concern for his glory should affect our lives. In which way God's concern for his glory should shape the Great Commission. Should affect our lives. The mission of this church here in this town. It's a good question. But I think we don't like to think about that question. Because for us, human beings, it seems too self-centered. Very selfish. And we know as human beings, every time that we act in self-centered manner, it's almost to detriment, prejudice of someone else. But that's not the case with God. When God is concerned about His own glory, actually His concern for His glory is the gospel itself. We prefer to believe that God is leaving up to us to choose a way by which we are most pleased to glorify Him. So, no, no. Let me think about the way that most pleased me that I could glorify God. And I think that's why we don't talk about Great Commission. We don't evangelize anyone. Because we are choosing ways of glorifying God that does not displease us. But God's concerned for His own glory. But that doesn't bring damage to us. And actually, God's passion and concern for His, His own glory, rather than opposing His love for us, opposing um, freedom, it is the foundation of His love for us. It is the foundation for our freedom. You see, all things that any human being wants. I want my freedom. That's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't become a believer. I want my freedom. Well, there is no freedom but in God. That's the true freedom. So, God's concern for His own glory is our good news. God's concern for His own glory is our good news. It is the gospel itself. And the reason I'm saying that is because right here in this verse that we read, God is calling His creatures to glorify Him, to praise Him, to worship Him. And the only way they can, they can do that is by redemption. And there is no redemption without the good news. There is no redemption. So the mission here of this 
and true servants. The mission is not an end in itself. It's a mean. It's a means. As John Piper says, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship exists because missions exist because worship doesn't. I love this quote. Mission exists because worship doesn't. And since God is worthy of all worship from all nations, not just the Dutch community, immigration is still there, and He is worthy of those people worship. That's why there is the Great Commission. To bring worship to God. To bring worship to God. And what we see is that sin opposes the Great Commission. Yeah. Sin is what opposes the church to go out and preach the gospel. Idolatry. Oh, we are not idolatry. We don't have image here. Oh, really? How much we idolatry, or we are creating idols for ourselves that stuck us to go out and preach the gospel. To go out and reach the lost. So what the Lord says here is that, I am the Lord, that's my name. There is no one else. I am the only one worthy to be worshipped. And as someone said, precisely because He is not one of many, He is not superior among inferior gods, He is not even best, the best God of all, above all gods, but He is the only one true God who is worthy of all praise. That's why He's saying, My glory I give to, to no other. So that is the principle that regulates our mission. The call the call of the servants is based in his election, but also in his mission. The empowering of the servants shapes the mission, our mission. And here you see that God's glory, it is the final principle that regulates the mission of these servants and our mission. And our mission. And we should not fall back. We have everything that we, we need to preach the gospel. The call, the empowering, and we know the goal is God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for saving us. It is the best gift ever that we can receive from you. But when you think about, when we think about sharing in your mission, what a privilege it is for me and for us, mere sinners, to participate in the Great Commission. Lord, may your Holy Spirit inspire us, lead us, give us passion to preach the gospel. Only those who have the passion for God's glory is the one who has passion to, to preach the gospel, to reach out the lost. So Lord, help us. May your Holy Spirit bring, bring clarity to us whether or not we have been led by the Spirit. Because if indeed we have been, O oh Lord, we should never turn our back to our call to preach the gospel to reach out this community, to open the door of our house 
Help us, O Holy Spirit. Apply those principles to our hearts, whether individually, as we can go out tomorrow and fulfill our ordinary vocations, but also our heavenly call to call people to the gospel. Help us in our jobs, in our schools, in our homes, wherever we go. Help us to understand that we are the church. Oh Lord, may we be your feet, your, your hands, your mouth, walking through the city. And how many times we have prayed for this city to turn, uh, so that they turn to Jesus. And here is Jesus interceding for us, to, for ourselves to turn to this city. And to reach out this city. So help us understand that, Lord. Bring this vision to our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you, you be with us until the end. Not just to be here on the Lord's days. But every day proclaim the good news for those who you want to save. So thank you so much, Lord. We pray all of these in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And we pray as you are the Lord. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. Faithfulness is a desirable attribute and a mark of godly character. In fact, faithfulness is a high calling of every Christian. But the problem is faithfulness is hard for us as fallen people. It is not in our nature to be faithful. But God knows this, and because of his love for us, he has shown us the way of faithfulness in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the faithful one. He is faithful to us and to the Father until the end. And here at this table is a picture of his faithfulness. He has given himself for us even to the point of dying in our place, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of all of our sins. It is his faithfulness that allows us to come to this table, and in partaking of this meal regularly, we are reminded that he continues to give himself to us. He continues to invite us to, into his presence, and he continues to intercede for us and to sanctify us. In 1 Thessalonians we read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Jesus Christ will be faithful to us to the end. So brothers and sisters, come with rejoicing to the table of the Lord's faithfulness. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.